Good evening. I want to start by thanking you for how well you treated the young men this morning. Of course, it's easy to compliment them when they did such a good job. Uh, we had a great week of camp. I heard that the other boys at all the various congregations this morning did a great job. Uh, like we said, this was a very young group, and we always tell them, you know, the goal is to get up there and not throw up. And then the next time you get up there, you hope that other people don't throw up. And uh, I think we accomplished that this morning, if nothing else. But I appreciate Jarrett and Max and all the boys, and I appreciate you for the wonderful support that you've shown them. I was reading an interesting story the other day about a woman in Israel who decided to buy her mother a new mattress. She felt that the mattress her mother was sleeping on was lumpy and, and worn out and attributing to her, her back problems. And so she decided to buy her mom this new mattress, and she surprised her, but her surprise was also a huge mistake. Because in switching out the mattresses, throwing out the old one, replacing it with a new one, she didn't realize that for many years her mother had kept cash hidden in the old mattress to the tune of $1 million. And there's a picture in the Tel Aviv newspaper that shows a woman combing through a, a junkyard outside of, Israel, uh, outside of Tel Aviv trying to find this mattress. And as of this day, she has yet to uncover it. And it just drives the point home that it can be easy for the next generation to toss out something that's very valuable. And case in point, I think it's church attendance. Over the span of 20 plus years in ministry, I've noticed a trend. A trend that seems to show uh, a lack of emphasis on gathering for worship. Of course, COVID didn't help this at all. But even before COVID, I think most ministers would tell you that they had noticed the same disturbing trend. Why is that? Why is church attendance getting less and less? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons that could be given for that. But in 2020... 47% of Americans said that they belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That's down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. Church membership in the United States was 73% when Gallup first measured it in 1937, and it remained near 70% for the next six decades, beginning a steady decline at the turn of the 21st century. Church membership is strongly related to age. 66% of traditionalists, people born before 1946, belong to a church compared to 58% of baby boomers, 50% of Generation X, and 36% of millennials say that they belong to a church. There is limited data right now for Gen Z, but so far the rates seem to be similar to those of millennials. In short, traditionalists or older church members are dying off and the younger generations are not really replacing them. Now, that data is disheartening no matter how you cut it. The trends are not positive. However, it's important to look past the numbers and see the bigger issue because church attendance is a symptom. It's not the disease. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's what we need to know about the book of Hebrews. First and foremost, the major theme of the book is better than. The author is connecting the old with the new. He's connecting dots here. And anytime the apostles spoke to a Jewish audience, their primary goal was to get them to understand that following Jesus was not an abandonment of their heritage. It was the most Jewish thing they could ever do. It was the next right step. They weren't rejecting their ancestry. No, in fact, they were embracing it. And so Moses, the law, the temple, the sacrifice, the sacrifices... All of it is embodied in Jesus the Messiah. You see, for the Jews, it wasn't about forgetting all about being Jewish. It was about everything pointing to where they were at. And now being a disciple of Jesus didn't mean that they disowned everything prior to them becoming a disciple. It was acknowledging that the old law had done exactly what it was meant to do. And the same is true for us. Everything that is pointed to in the law and the prophets has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is not Christianity versus Judaism. There's not a conflict here. Christianity is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets from the Old Testament pointed to. So it's not like one is is good and the other is bad. No, the new is the fulfillment of the old. You can't have the new without the old. Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament. So the law, the prophets, the temple, the tablets of stone, Moses, all of it pointed to the Messiah. All of those things were shadows. Jesus is the reality. So you no longer live in the shadows. You no longer embrace the shadows. You embrace the reality that Jesus is better. The problem and the challenge for Jewish Christians was their vision. They needed to refocus. They were earthly-minded when they needed to be spiritually focused. And verse 19 begins with therefore. And as we've talked about before, therefore is a connection word. Therefore means that the writer is about to connect everything prior to with what he is about to say. The old covenant has been fulfilled. Jesus is better than. He is the Messiah that the law and the prophets pointed to. He is the one-time, once-and-for-all sacrifice. And therefore, make sure you go to church. All right? I mean, that's the message, right? All that being said, make sure you attend worship or you're going to hell. Not exactly. That's not the main message. You know, this is the signature verse for church attendance, I understand. But verse 25 is not even a complete sentence, so there has to be more to it than just that, right? Notice verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The immediate context here has to do with the fact that Jesus is our our sacrifice, He is the forgiveness of our sins, the atoning sacrifice. In fact, the entire letter of Hebrews is a warning not to fall away. 
Don't return to Judaism. If a person rejects the sacrifice of Jesus, then they have no hope of salvation. The word forsake here in verse 25 means to abort, to abandon, to desert, which means that when you consider the writer and the context of everything that's going on here, there are great spiritual ramifications for abandoning Jesus and discipleship. And so we can assume that some Christians, some Jewish Christians, had already done this, which is why the Hebrew writer is addressing it. I mean, just notice the language that he uses. Hold fast without wavering. He warns them not to trample underfoot the Son of God or profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. He also warns them not to throw away their confidence or to be like those who shrink back and are destroyed. So this is the context in which we find the words not forsaking our own assembling together. It's not just about skipping church. It's about falling away from the faith, which aligns perfectly with the entire letter because that's what precisely the Hebrews were thinking about doing, some of which probably did do, and that is turn their back on discipleship, turn their back on on Jesus, and return to Judaism, abandoning their faith and returning back to the shadows. Let me ask you this. How many of you grew up on a ranch or a farm Okay, a few of you. How many of you had horses on on your ranch or your farm? Okay, so my guess is if you grew up on a ranch or a farm that had horses, you made a lot of trips to the horse barn to feed them, right? And no matter how many trips you made to the horse barn, you're still a human being. I can see it. You're still a human. You're not a horse, right? No matter how many trips you made, you didn't become a horse, And no matter how many trips you make to church, no matter how many times you come into this building and sit in a pew, that doesn't make you a Christian. Not that by itself, right? This is not just about a ritual. This is about relationship. The goal is not attendance. The goal is involvement. Showing up is certainly half the battle, but the other half is stirring up. You see, verse 24 again says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the word stimulate here is a rather interesting Greek word and it is applied to a seizure or a fit. In this context, it refers to a strong urging of others toward the goal of producing more love for one another and good works of service. The meaning of the expression in Hebrews here in verse 25 or 24 and 25 means provocation toward a good end steadfastness is achieved through the activities promoted by assembling together and encouraging one another. The word for assembling here is a rather complicated Greek word, which means coming together in a meeting. Christians are to meet together to encourage and exhort one another to lift one another up. I mean, how could the early Christians encourage and strengthen one another without being together? They were to meet in order to accomplish these things edifying, exhorting, and encouraging are essential aspects of the assembly. So to forsake the assembly is to forsake the things that foster faithfulness and steadfastness. Not only that, but by abandoning the assembly, these early Christians were forfeiting the opportunity to receive the encouragement that they so desperately needed. Don't walk away from the faith You need this, and you need it now more than ever. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. The emphasis is not on what a Christian gets necessarily by coming to church, but rather the emphasis is on what they can contribute by being an active part of the congregation. No one 
should pat themselves on the back just for showing up. That's the least you can do. Jesus died for this blood-bought institution. He purchased each one of us member by member with his own blood. The least we can do is show up. God's call is not to come, but to care. Church attendance is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. And the Hebrew writer says, you need to be in the assembly because you need what the assembly has to offer. And you need to be in the assembly because you have something to offer. The implication is clear. You want to be strong, then go to worship. You want to be healthy spiritually, then make the assembly a priority. When I was coaching, my kids were very young. In fact, we didn't even have Zane yet. Uh, We had Keely and Zoe, and my wife was and still is big on sitting down for supper when we're all home. So we sit down for a meal together every chance that we get. And even back then, when the kids were small, we sat down to eat supper together. But as a coach, you weren't always there in the evenings. So there were many nights that that I was gone, especially during baseball season. You might have four nights a week that you're playing games. Let me ask you this. If I wasn't at supper with my family, did I forsake them? Was I abandoning my family by not being there because I had work? Hopefully you see the connection here. I didn't give up on them because that's what the word forsake means. That's what it means in this passage. It means giving up on. It means abandoning. It means forsaking. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same word. God did not abandon Jesus to the realm of the dead. Paul talked about being persecuted but not forsaken. Several of Paul's companions, including Demas, deserted him. Same word. In this same letter to the Hebrews, the author reiterates the promise of God when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the person who misses Sunday or Wednesday evening services or Sunday morning services, if they miss, they're not necessarily abandoning or forsaking. This passage emphasizes the need for Christians to be together for worship. Absolutely it does. And there are other passages that do that. As a member of the Lord's body, we are called to gather with the saints. There's no doubt about that. Being together with our church family should be a priority for the child of God. As we said a few weeks ago, there is a free buffet offered every week. We may be feeding ourselves during the week, and we should be, but why would you pass up free food, right? To forsake the assembly would be to walk away, to desert, to give up, to abandon, And again, I'm not saying that someone who makes the conscious decision to not come to worship is okay. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying as we read this passage, we need to read it correctly. And reading it correctly would mean that if somebody was forsaking the assembly, they've turned their back on it. They're done with it. They're going back to Judaism. They're going back to wherever they came from. And they've decided that they don't need this Jesus and discipleship stuff anymore. That's what the Hebrew writer is getting at. Anytime we talk about church attendance... The question that comes up is, what can we do, right? What can we do? How can we increase attendance? Many churches are asking right now and have been for many years, what do we do for Sunday night and Wednesday night especially? Now, I'm blessed to be a part of a congregation, and you are as well, that gets pretty good attendance on Sunday night and Wednesday night. In fact, there are are certain friends of mine that have asked me, what are y'all doing to get people back on Sunday night and Wednesday night? Because they notice that our, our attendance numbers are pretty good. So I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, I understand. But many churches are asking that question. And what I have noticed is that many times our answers revolve around blaming the non-attender. That's what we do, right? Well, if they were just more serious, if they were just more committed. And you know what? That may be exactly true. And in many cases, it probably is. 
But instead of always blaming the non-tender, I think it would be worth our while to inspect what we expect of people, right? First and foremost, I think we need to examine the quality of our time together. I mean, if we're going to offer a midweek Bible study, which we don't have to do, by the way, I'm glad we do, but that's a tradition, and it's a good tradition. But if we're going to offer a midweek Bible study, then we need to guarantee that what is offered is worth the time and investment. You know, we can blame the non-attenders and accuse them of not being committed, but we have every right to expect the teacher to be committed as well. The one presenting the devotional, we, we can expect them to be committed as well. We have every right to do that. To expect folks to come and sit through a Bible class where the teacher is obviously not prepared or, to, or the study is irrelevant and there's no personal application, I mean, that's an unreasonable request in my mind. We've made Sunday night and Wednesday night a test of faithfulness, nothing more really, in many of our churches. Is that not true? I mean, that's kind of what we've done. We've made it a test of faithfulness. As long as you're here, it shows how committed you are. But there's reasons why we gather. This is not a checklist item. Kind of like Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, so you know you need to sit through Bible class whether you like it or not or whether it's beneficial or not. But this is wrong. If we're gathering just for the sake of gathering, if our sole purpose for doing something is just because we've always done it this way, then we're completely off base with what the Bible teaches. We should expect poor attendance if we're not going to emphasize quality. We shouldn't treat Sunday evening like it's a cheaper form of Sunday morning. We should never throw things together for Wednesday night just so that we can say we met the obligation of coming together in the middle of the week. We may never overcome the declining numbers on Sunday night and Wednesday night regardless of what we do, but we cannot, we cannot point the finger at the non-attender while ignoring quality. What we do when we come together is of vital importance. So if you're a teacher of a Bible class, then make sure you're prepared. If you're doing the devotional, make sure you're prepared. Make sure you're on time. Make sure that you have invested instead of throwing something together last minute. If you're leading the singing, take the time and effort to put together a great song service because you are leading us in worship. You know, we, we may do all that and look at the declining attendance and say, you know, well, we've, did every, we've done everything possible, and that's okay. Sometimes our best efforts will still fall short for some. And there are many Christians who need to be more faithful, no doubt. There are many who have misplaced priorities, who lack commitment, but they must be strengthened when they do decide to attend. You want to know a recipe for a dying or declining church? No relationships. That's a recipe for a dying church. When people come in, fulfill their obligation, check it off their list, and return home, that's a recipe for disaster. No sharing, no communication, no hanging around after church. I was on a podcast this week in which they asked me, what do you think is the sign of a healthy church? And I said, well, I think there's a lot, but one of them is people hanging around after services. I think that's a sign of a healthy church. And we have people here that hang around for 30 minutes to an hour after services talking. Others that go and hang out somewhere else after church, whether it be at a restaurant or each other's homes. We have the Yak group that gets together on regular occasions. We have the 40s through 60s group that gets together on regular occasions. We have the prime timers who go and eat just about every Sunday together. We have a really strong group of Christians here that love fellowship, and that's the sign of a healthy congregation. Getting together at other times besides just when we meet, that's a good sign. When your closest friends are your brethren, it directly affects 
the welfare of the church, and I think we can rightly assume it can have an impact on attendance. I think we've seen that. Here's something else. The church must be willing to do this if they want to have any hope of increasing attendance. There must be a willingness to assess and to be accountable. Are we merely doing what we've always done because we've always done it that way? That's another recipe for disaster. That can be a death sentence. Are we questioning whether certain methods work? Have we assessed what might work, might work best for us? You know, quality is going to suffer if we're unwilling to assess and hold ourselves accountable. Merely doing something because we've always done it is a terrible mode of operation. Now, the thing we've always done may be a great thing and it's continuing to work. I'm not a big believer in change just for the sake of change. But sometimes change is necessary. Sometimes it's vital. A sure way to kill the quality and hinder progression is to avoid improvement. One thing I believe as a parent, and you can disagree with me, but one thing I always believed as a parent is is set your standards high. Have a high bar for your kids. Have high expectations for them. Of course, you have to adapt and adjust with a kid. You know, a high expectation for your child may be C's in school because that's the best that they can do. But have high expectations. I never wanted my kids to settle for status quo. And I think there are some churches that can do that. They can set the bar too low. That they can just settle for mediocrity and status quo. And that's unfortunate because we were made for so much more than that. And we should demand more from ourselves individually and as a body. Everyone should be growing. Every church should be growing. It may not be growing numerically, but every person within that church should be growing in their maturity, which means that each and every Christian, whether there are 10 or 1,000 in a congregation, should be reaching new heights in their faith, and each and every member must be willing to assess and hold themselves accountable, as well as assess and hold the leadership accountable as well, not just the shepherds, but the staff, those who are leading them. It's important that we have accountability. Through the years, the church has often been led by fear. There's such a a fear of spending money or trying something new or, or breaking tradition. As a result, we sit stagnant and never move forward. New ideas are never implemented. Things never change, all because of fear. Our default must be faith, not fear. Now, we have our justifications, whether well, we want to be good stewards or, you know, we don't want to disrupt the apple cart, whatever the justification may be, but there's really no excuse for not adapting and adjusting. We need to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us with, but we can't use stewardship as an excuse or a cop-out. We do need to be mindful of the fact that change just for the sake of change may not be wise, and that change is difficult, but we can't resist change on the basis of fear. God is going to hold us accountable, so we need to be holding ourselves accountable now. The one-talent gentleman buried his talent, and the master was irate. Playing it safe is not the expectation. That's not the standard, and playing it safe doesn't take faith. I hope this didn't come across as my soapbox because that's not what it was intended this is not really a a specific indictment on us either but these are things that that I've noticed as I travel around and talk to different churches I, I am grateful that we have a healthy body here led by eight godly men who are doing their utmost to make certain that this body is is moving forward and seeking to fulfill its mission and you know it's exciting as a minister as the preacher to be a part of that 
But there are always things that we can look at and assess and say, can we do this better? What can we do better? How can we make it better? One thing that I believe is undeniable is that if the church is going to stay relevant and make an impact, she's going to have to inspect what's expected. We never change or compromise the truth. Can't do that, no matter what our numbers say. However, we definitely must change and or adapt and adjust our methods, right? Let me ask you this. If we were to come up with an anthem for the churches of Christ, what do you think it would be? Based on the hymns that we sing, especially the old hymns, what's that one hymn that stands out to you that's our our anthem? What do you think? Nobody has a guess? I'm going to say this, and you can disagree with me again. Our God, He is alive. I think think that's our anthem, right? And by the way, you don't have to put your hand over your heart the next time we sing that, but I, I think that is our anthem. Our God, He is alive. In Him we live and we survive, right? Why are you here? Why do you come here week in and week out? And I do realize the irony of preaching a sermon on church attendance when you're here. Why are you here? Is it just to check it off the list? Is it just to say, I've been here, I get credit, like the attendance, the daily attendance in college, you know, I've got my attendance for the day, for the week? Or are you here because you, you know you have something to contribute and you know that you need something that others can give to you? It's not just about being present. It's about what you do with your presence. Our God, He is alive. In Him we live and we survive. It's about what our God has done and who we are because of Him. It's a beautiful song. It's an identity song and one that points directly at who we are as Christians. He resides in us. We are His temple and we come together as a bunch of little temples to make up this spiritual house that He bought with the blood of His Son. You should be here. You should be here. Not to check it off your list. But you should be here because you give life to this place. You should be here because you get life from this place. And you should be here because life was given for this place. So, let's not only focus on being present, but what we do with our presence. And if we can help you tonight and show you what a loving family does by praying with you or encouraging you, Let us do that. If you have a greater need, like a spiritual need, for instance, like baptism, you're ready to put on Christ. Maybe you've been studying the Bible and you're ready to take that step. Maybe you'd like to study the Bible with someone. We'd like to do that as well. We want you to be an active part of this family, and we want you to know that you are loved. Dave's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?